It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Daily Thunder. We're sort of going through a, a fun series this week. Nathan's out of town speaking, and so I got assigned all five. And so we decided that we would just turn it into a five-part series this week. So every day of this week, Monday through Friday, is going to be one of the key foundational points that we have built on as Ellerslie Discipleship Training. And so we're going through what we typically call the five fingers. Uh, Of course, the name of this series can't just be called the five fingers, it needs to be called the five fabulous fingers, uh, because they are fabulous truths. And it's funny because lists of five have been greatly divisive in the body of Christ uh, throughout the ages and generations. We have the five points of Calvinism and the five points of Arminianism, and this is not to try and wage war with any of those. This has nothing to do with uh, the science of salvation, which is what those are about. This has to deal with the essence of true Christianity. And of course, some people could say, well, isn't that salvation? Oh, it is, it is, but this isn't trying to wage war. This is merely saying there are five fingers on a hand, and we started on Monday by describing this invisible hand, that if a hand is invisible and it wants to do something like wave at you, you can't see it. So what God invented, what he created, was a glove that would be in the image of the hand that would rest perfectly uh, in obedience and yieldedness upon this invisible hand, and as a result, in this natural realm, reveal that which is invisible. And so what we see is these five fingers, or the five fingers of even the glove, uh, would be an interesting way of uh, expressing it too, but they enunciate in this natural realm that which is invisible in the heavenly realms. And this is the communication of God to us that we would believe, and not just believe, but believe and be saved. And not just believe and be saved, but believed and be completely regenerated, altered, transformed, conformed into the image of Christ, into the, in, into the image of that which is invisible. And so as a result, uh, we are going through this uh, series, and I'm going to g- give you a quick uh, overview, but this one is called The Life. I could have called uh, it In Us, which would have worked, because th- we've been going through the Word of God in person, is... Scripture, I'm sorry, did I just say that? Uh, the Word of God in text is where we started on Monday, which is Scripture. Then the Word of God in text is going to reveal one singular thing, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. And so the Word of God in person then comes, and that's Jesus Christ. And it's more than what Jesus is and who he is. The fact that he is God Almighty in the flesh is amazing, but it's the fact that, and number three is the word of God in action. It's what this man is going to do. And that's what we focused on yesterday, which is typically historically understood just as the cross. Jesus came and did the cross. Now, what that means is he did his rescue work. He did his atoning work. He did his forgiving work. He did his crushing of the serpent's head work. He did all that was necessary and required to break our chains, set us free, for a purpose, and that purpose is greater than just washing us clean from our sin. You see, he designed us as a glove, and as a glove, we are intended to rest upon an invisible hand and to reveal that which is invisible, which is where we start really hitting the ground running here, 
in number four, which is the word of God in us. And that's typically going to be understood just simply in the scriptures as the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two is going to showcase the purchase of the cross, which is greater than just mere forgiveness. It is Pentecost. It is the fact that God desires to move inside of us and express his life in and through us. So we're like work gloves. See, Jesus became a work glove and showcased that which was invisible, the movements of the hand. He only did that which his father was doing. And the spirit of God rested in him, lived inside of him, and animated him. Though he was God, he functioned as a glove. Now, he was perfect as a glove because he was God, but he still, it's, and it's important for us to note, he became a glove and lived as a glove though he was God. So it's like though he was the invisible hand, he became a work glove so that he could rescue us as work gloves, so that he could set us right as work gloves, so that that almighty hand, that invisible hand, could enter into us, which is where we see it in this progression. The word of God in text, scripture, reveals the word of God in person, Jesus Christ, and what that word of God in person did upon that cross. And when we place our faith in that triumvirate of the word, the scripture, and what it says about the man, and what that man did, when we place our faith in that work, in that as the truth, it changes us and we are saved. We are transformed. We are altered. We are Clothed in Christ Jesus is the way Paul would say it. We put off the old life and we put on a new man. We put on Christ. And as a result, we are cleansed and washed. We are in that clothing. We share in an identification in his work on the cross. And our old man is crucified. Our flesh is nullified. We are circumcised in and through his crucifixion. We are buried with him. And we rise to newness of life in Christ Jesus. Because of our faith in what he did, we simply believe his word, and as a result, we are transformed. And then when he ascended to the right hand of majesty on high and took his seat of authority of authorities, king of kings and lord of lords, we find ourselves brought near by the blood of Jesus. We're there with him, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Jesus says to us, ask. Ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. You see, all of this has been accomplished so that God can now move into his estate that he purchased. Now, you see, he built this estate in the first place to live in it, but something has gone terribly wrong. It's called sin, way back in the, in the book of Genesis. However, what went wrong in, in the book of Genesis way back in the beginning, near 6,000 years ago, was corrected by Jesus Christ so that God Almighty can once again live inside of these bodies. So the word of God in us is what we're going to talk about today. Now, I chose a very unusual way of saying that. Instead of calling this message in us, which would have made sense, or how about the Holy Spirit? That would have made sense. I'm going to call it life. You're like, what? Well, because that's what it is. It's life, but not just the life as you would know in your mortal body. Because if I said, are you living? That would be an interesting question for you theologically. Are you alive? Well, because you have believed in Jesus, you would say, yes, I am alive in Christ. And you would be accurate. But now, imagine that I'm talking to a non-believer, okay? And I say, are you alive? You say, yes, I'm alive. Scripture says that they're dead. But what that means is they are spiritually dead. There is no life in them 
of the spiritual nature. There is no heavenly life. There is no eternal life in them. They are cut off from that life and they are living in death. They're living in sin. But they are alive, we all know that. They are breathing. But it is a breath of this earth. It is like oxygen of this earth. They have lungs of earth. They don't have lungs that can breathe in the breath of heaven. They are not fit to take in a breath of that heavenly air. And as a result, they are dead even while they live. So what we have is this notion of God bringing us to life, the way we were intended to live, where we actually begin to breathe, even though we're here on earth, heavenly air. We begin to breathe the breath of heaven, which is what the Holy Spirit is. It is the life of God. So Hebrews 7 is talking about Jesus, and it says, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. So that word for endless is a really, really powerful word. So Jesus has come in the power of an endless life. And that word for endless is akatalitas, which means indissoluble, inextinguishable, isn't that a great word? Unstoppable, unable to be destroyed, unable to be hindered, everlasting, endless. Now the word endless to us means it doesn't have any end. So we've sort of missed the actual depth of meaning in this word because it's more than just that it has no end, it's that it can never be stopped. It is unstoppable. So I, my, my mental picture for this, have you ever seen one of those birthday candles, you know, that is a trick candle and you blow it out and then it comes back? We, we accidentally had some of those, put them on Hudson's little cake when he was like two or three, and then, uh, you know, blew them out and stuck them in the trash and said, <laughs> so I, yeah, it's like that. Uh, so, but this is more like a torch where you can blow it out, you can douse it uh, however you want, and then you stick it even at the depths of the ocean, and what does it do? <laughs> and you're like, it can't, that can't happen. That's what we're talking about, though. This is a life that cannot be extinguished even when it's put into the depths of the earth. <laughs> it comes back. Okay, that's the power of the akatolitas life. So here's, here's our way of looking at it in Hebrews 7. A priest who has come according to the power of an akatolitas life, an inextinguishable, unstoppable, indissoluble life. Isn't that good? And I don't care if you stick him in the depths of the earth. He's coming back. His life is unable to be quenched and put out. He's like a trick birthday candle, except so much greater. <laughs> Jesus has the power of life. In the in the scriptures in the New Testament, we take the word power and we have two different versions of power. We have one called dunamis power in the Greek, which is like muscular power. It's the strength of an army. And then you have exousia power, which is going to be jurisdictional or legal power. In other words, you could be a little diddly squat king, you know, and be about four foot two and weigh about 90 pounds, but you could still have power. You could have authority power, okay? Jesus has both exousia power and he has dunamis power, okay? He has authority of a king of kings, but he also has the muscle of the host of heaven, okay? He comes in both of these. And that's important to note, but so when I say Jesus has the power of life, he has the legal power of life, he rules over the domain of life. 
but he also has power to bring life about. So in John 5, 21, and also verse 24, it says, for as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, do you guys know what the word quickens means? It means to make something live. Okay, so for as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them and makes it live, even so the Son quickens whom he will. The Son is able to bring things to life. This is what he has. He possesses this power. And then in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. Okay, now remember, we, we've already described akatolitas life, okay? It's everlasting, it's endless, it's indissoluble, it's inextinguishable, it's unstoppable. When we oftentimes focus on the word everlasting life, we just think, oh, well, when I get to heaven, then I will have this everlasting life that can never be quenched. Instead of recognizing that when we believe on Jesus, we receive life. We are no longer dead, we are alive. What sort of life are we now living? We have an akatolitas life. We have an everlasting life. And that actually is right now, and it is unstoppable. It is inextinguishable. Isn't that an amazing thought? Jesus comes in the power of this, and then what does he give to us? He gives us that life. It's not just some you know, version of, oh, oh I, I'm alive. I can breathe. It's more than a mortal life. It is a super mortal life. It is a super normal life. It is a immortal life, okay? It is a, an extraordinary thing. So anyone who believes on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. In John 10, 17 and 18, therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Isn't that an interesting statement? It's like the father loves him because he's going to lay down his life. That I might take it again. What an interesting little comment there. It's not just that he's laying down his life, but he's going to take it again. No man, let's remember the trick birthday candle. It's like, yes, you can blow me out. Oh, uh, breath of devil. Do your best. I will just... <sighs> come back to life, even in the garbage can. In other words, it doesn't matter what you do. I am going to have life. You blow out this flame. This is an akatolitas flame. So no man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Listen, I have power to lay it down. This is exousia. He has legal power to lay down his life. And I have power to take it again. I have legal authority to grab back that life. This commandment have I received of my Father. Whew. Now, we've already covered who Jesus is, the man, on Tuesday we went through that. And that's like so startling. But this fits in with that sort of reflection. It's like, who is this man? If you started bragging about the fact that you have authority to lay down your life and take it back again, uh, we would start to look at you funny. Okay, We don't have that authority. He does. This is a God-level thing. The great redemption, the amazing work of unstoppable life. So in Hebrews 2, 9 and 14, Jesus might taste death for everyone, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 
So remember how I said that Jesus has the power of life. It's interesting to note, and I'm not going to teach on it today, but I'll just reference it, but that Satan, the devil, has the power of death, which is why I've always said he's over the trash can, okay? So this territory known as the trash can, a trash can may be in my home, but it doesn't bear the nature of my home. It is a segregated, separated territory that bears a different nature, a different smell. And that is what we would refer to in our homes as the trash can, right? So I don't come into your home and judge you by your trash can. I recognize what is in your trash can, maybe when I throw away my gum just before we eat dinner, right? And I notice, oh, they must be of a good nature and a cleanly nature. Why? Because all the stuff that's dirty is in here, okay? God is not judged by what's in the trash can. It is other than him. He is holy. The trash can is unholy, which is why... When we entered into the unholy realms through sin, we are deserving of the trash can. We were never intended for the trash can, but God created the trash can for that which is born of transgression, that which is sinful, that which is other than him. We were created to be like him, to bear his image. Something has gone terribly wrong. And there is one who has exousia, which is legal authority, over that trash can, over the power of death, and that is Satan. So we, when we sin, enter into this different domain or the kingdom of darkness. I should probably put it over here since this is always where I keep the kingdom of darkness. We enter into the kingdom of darkness. And so therefore, when Christ comes, he wants to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, which is the kingdom of life. 2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So he's brought life and immortality. I mean, that's an amazing statement. That's an endless life. That's the best way of saying it. It's an unstoppable life. It's, if you were immortal, you wouldn't concern yourself with the fact that someone could kill you because they couldn't. You would be immortal. You see, there is an aspect of our new creature. Even though our old bodies will pass away, and they can, they can. We can shed them and put them off. And Paul says, to die is gain, guys. There is a part of us, a new creature, that cannot ever die. It is hidden in Christ, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, that is an immortal, endless, everlasting life that we have inherited through our faith in Christ Jesus. We have been brought to newness of life in Christ. What is that life? Well, it's a capital L life. It's not like the life that you had before you breathed your first breath of heavenly air. This is an immortal life. It is a life that will continue forever and always. And that is an extraordinary thought of what we have in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the only possible solution. So what is needed is an Adam without sin, a high priest that carries with him a spotless, satisfying offering. You see, if we try and function as our own priest before the bar of heaven, we need to be an Adam Without sin, well, there we already blew it right there because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we would need to carry with us a spotless, satisfying offering. You see, you can use bulls and goats and sheep and you can cover and atone for the sin of the moment, but it's not an offering for all time. See, this is a really tricky thing and that's why the, the nation of Israel they were given the law and they were shown their sin and they were given a system of priesthood, 
but it could not truly satisfy and deal with their deeper issue. We need a redeemer. We need a savior. So listen who Jesus is. This is incredible. He knew no sin. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. In him was and is no sin, 1 John 3.5. He did no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, Isaiah 53.9. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2.22. He was and ever is the Lamb of God, John 1.29. Without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1.19. He did nothing amiss, Luke 23.41. Certainly he was a righteous man, Luke 23.47. The prince of this world had nothing, no legal grounds of condemnation in him, John 14.30. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He was just, 1 Peter 3.18. That's what we needed, guys. We needed a lamb, a holy lamb, to be offered in our place. So Jesus, we know that this is what has happened. This is the word of God in text, foreshadows this lamb. I mean, the entire basis of the Hebrew culture is showcasing and foreshadowing, giving a symbol of this. And it is saying one will come and he will remove the iniquity of the land in one singular day. And then he does come. And then he does do this amazing action, which is what we talked about yesterday. The ransom, the redemption, not just the moral requirements of the law and Adam without sin, but the fulfillment of the just penalty and compensation of the law. Death, curse, wrath, and separation. So imagine that you live perfectly. Well, still, the penalty for your years of imperfection would still be death, curse, wrath, and separation. So do you see the challenge that we have? Even if you started today and lived perfectly righteous, you would still need to pay the just penalty and compensation of the law for all that you didn't do. And so as a result, you have yourself a challenge. It's called a conundrum. You cannot save yourself. However, if one were to come that is not born of the lineage of Adam and inherit that fatherly disposition of the old man, and he were to live perfect and, let's say, lay down his own life on our behalf, and he were to be God, I mean, could you, the, the, thing, the story is so grand, it's, it's ridiculous, right? But that's exactly what it is. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It actually happened. So here's the challenge. God has to do this and he can't violate his godness, he can't violate his righteousness, he can't violate his holiness and his perfection in so doing. God cannot steal, and therefore God cannot override the jurisdiction of the devil and steal from, from him those children that are condemned under the law of sin and death. Heavenly justice demands due payment, equitable compensation, appropriate satisfaction of punishment. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. It's slave for slave, body for body. God satisfied the legal demands of his own law by giving up his own eye for our eye, his own tooth for our tooth, his own blood for our blood, his own body for our body. He became obedient unto death and therefore gave up his life for our life. He took on himself the equitable compensation, the due payment for our sin, the just and satisfying punishment for our disobedience. He paid it with his own body and blood, the perfect body and blood for all those in legal bondage. You see, it's interesting, but the issues of life are legal. It's not just a power thing, like God's just going to come in and bust the teeth of the enemy. He has to deal with legalities, too. You see, we're caught in that trash can, legally. And God is a just God. So therefore, as a holy, just God, who will not violate his perfect righteousness, he needs to do everything righteously. 
So how does he get us out of that trash can, out of the controls of the enemy, legally, without violating his law? And yet, strangely, the more you study it, the more in awe you get. He did it. He did it legally. To be able to transfer us from the domain of death into the domain of life, he did it. He did it in perfect righteousness. He did it in perfect legal accuracy and just measure. Everything he did was done perfectly. Jesus purchased you and your body. He wants to move in and make your body his home. So this is a legal transaction that is taking place. The word of God in text, the scripture, is going to foreshadow this. That this word of God in person, we know him as Jesus Christ, is going to come and fulfill all righteousness. He is going to do all that the Old Testament and all the prophets and all the law dictate. He will become the fulfillment of the law. He will become the, the rod that buds. He will become the manna that comes down from heaven. He will become the water that comes out of the rock. He is the rock. He is going to be the high priest. He is going to be the temple that itself, if you tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. In other words, he fulfills the shadows and the types of the Old Testament. But why is he doing this? You see, he is come, going to come and do a legal work, and he is going to purchase for himself something with this payment, with this ransom, with this redemption. See, we have in the Old Testament this picture of a kinsman redeemer in Boaz, and we're going to see Jesus function as a kinsman redeemer and purchase that which is shocking. I mean, in that story, he's going to purchase Ruth? Are you, are you serious? She's a Gentile. She's from Moab. A Moabitess? You're going to do that? And he's going to come to us and he says, I want them. Are, are, you, are you sure? Are, are you sure you would want us? You see, he puts value on us, purchases, purchases us through his shed blood. So up to this point, leading up to today, we have the word of God in text, the word of God in person, the word of God in action to do what? To purchase for himself a people. Legally, we belong to him. Now, sometimes God will do something, but it will not be recognized. For instance, God rejects Saul as king, but Saul still remains king. He's an illegitimate king, but he still is acting as king. Jesus purchases people with his blood, but that doesn't mean they always recognize that this is purchased territory. Even we as Christians have a tendency. We believe in Jesus. We're like, oh, Jesus, have your way, but we still hold on to the territories if it belongs to us. You see, this body is his. He desires to make it his home. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So look at that very last word, God's. It's apostrophe S. You guys know what that means. Possessive. That means our body and our spirit belong to him. They were purchased at a price. What was that? His very life was given to secure ours. See, when you recognize this, when you look upon the text, and believe what it says about the man, and believe that what that man did 
is sufficient to rescue you from the bondage of that trash can, then what happens is you transfer from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of a dear son. You transfer from darkness unto light, from death unto life, so that your body can now function as it originally was intended to function. It was built originally as a house for God. But because of the terrible ramifications of sin, it has been cut off until now. And faith in his work has turned a key, opened a door. That glove, which was absent the hand, which, and a glove absent of a hand is ridiculous, guys. I mean, what can a glove do absent a hand? It can't do anything. Because it was designed to be animated by a hand. So, when we once again are corrected and that hand, which I'm going to liken to the Holy Spirit, moves into us, we can begin to function as a glove the way we were intended to function. John 14 says, and I will pray the Father, this is Jesus talking, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Uh Uh-oh, we have another invisible God thing going on here. But you know him, for he dwells with you, get this, and will be in you. Okay, so what we have is a foreshadow. This is not yet fully fulfilled, but it is a declaration of what Christ is just about to do. He's just about to die. He's just about to be buried. He's just about to be resurrected. He's just about to ascend to the Father. And then his Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Truth, as it's referenced here, is going to be given as another helper. An invisible God that is going to live, not just with us, but in us. Because I live, you will live also. Boy, that, that's a, a refrigerator quote right there. I mean, just stick that right on your computer. I don't know, do something with that. Because I live, you will live also. Now, what an interesting statement, because just imagine if you're the disciples, you're listening to that going, okay, I see that you live, but what is he talking about? This is a bigger form of life. He is going to die and come to life again, proving himself the son of God, Proving proving that he does come in the power of an endless life. And because he lives, you will live also. Why? Because you believe in him. You are in him, and therefore, Where he goes, you go. What he has, you have. He has life. He has archetolitos life. Unstoppable, indissoluble, inextinguishable life. And so do you. Because I live, you will live also. Oh, what a great statement. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Ooh, what's he talking about here? This is the great mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed. So in the New Testament, when Paul is writing, what's he writing? He's writing this. He's explaining this in his epistles. He's explaining who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how Jesus has purchased you, and how the Holy Spirit is going to move inside of you to now fulfill that work, to make that legal work a reality in this earth. You in Christ, Christ in you. So Paul uses the term in, and I know you guys are very familiar with this because we talk about this all the time here at Ellerslie. 
But when we believe in Jesus, the term in Scripture is that we are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. So if you want to study that in the New Testament, it's a very easy study. If you just do in Christ, in him, and in whom. And you'll see it all throughout Paul's letters. It's just everywhere. But it's more than us just being in Christ. We are in Christ by faith. We enter into Christ on that cross when we look upon it. We share in his death and we are crucified with Christ, just as Paul says. Our old man is, is nullified, is crucified, is put off. We are buried with Christ by faith. We are resurrected to newness of life in Christ. We ascend into the heavenly realms in Christ. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ. That is, how, that is what we gain by faith in Christ. Now what we also are gaining is access unto the treasury of heaven. Technically, the best way to say it is to the fullness of Christ is what we are made available to, to the life of God. You see, it's not just that we are in Christ, it's that we have been made ready to receive the fullness of who he is. The door unlocked, and this is washed so that God can actually enter in and live inside of us as his actual, real-world dwelling place. Now, brace yourselves for this. If I were to ask you about the Old Testament's temple, and there was a 20-cubit by 20-cubit holy of holies, actually a square, pretty interesting. Just like the New Jerusalem is a square. Have you ever studied that? It's just like this huge square. And it's the presence of God. It's where God dwells, right? So this is a miniature of it. It's a 20-cubit by 20-cubit square. Did God live in that 20 cubit by 20 cubit square? That's, well, his presence was there. I mean, that's, that's where he chose to dwell. So I, I, obviously I caught some of you off guard with that question. Yeah, his presence was there. He lived there as a foreshadow that he was going to come and live in a temple. You see, God was showcasing something. Now we know that God is everywhere. Right? So to say that God lives in a 20 cubit by 20 cubit box is sort of ridiculous. Well, you could say the same thing about the fact that he lives inside of you. He's not just limited to that. Well, he lives in all of us, but this is the miracle. He lives in intimate fellowship there. It's not just a general presence. It's an intimate presence. So you in Christ, Christ in you, the great exchange. God is moving inside. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Jesus comes in the power of an endless life. And then it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit is where the life is. The spirit is going to move in and bring that same akatolitos life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I don't know if you have this question, but you could think, but I thought the Holy Spirit was in me. Why does it say Christ in me? You ever had that thought? It's a good, good question. It's like, is it Christ in me or is it the Holy Spirit inside of me? So, See if I can explain it by reading you two scriptures. But you are not in the flesh. This is Romans 8, 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. 
Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Okay, so what you see is that the spirit comes in the name of Jesus. Okay, when the spirit of God dwelled in the body of Jesus, you would have called it Jesus. Okay, it's the spirit of the Christ. And what spirit raised him from the dead is the spirit of Christ. I know that sounds strange, but it's the spirit of the anointed. You know, that's what's funny is the anointing is the Holy Spirit. That's what the Christos is. It's the one upon whom the Holy Spirit is. And so it's the spirit of the Christ. We are the body of Christ. And what's inside of us? The spirit of Christ. So listen to 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. You'll also see this dimension. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So in the Old Testament, you know what it's going to say? It says, the word of God came unto Jeremiah. The word of God came unto Micah. Here, in 1 Peter, it's going to refer to that as the spirit of Christ. Isn't that interesting? The spirit of Christ is testifying to them. Now, we know who the spirit of Christ is. It's the Holy Spirit. But isn't it odd to call it the Spirit of Christ? What does the Holy Spirit do? He reveals Christ. That's what he does. In the Old Testament, who carried along the writers? The Holy Spirit to reveal what? Christ. And in the New Testament, who carried along the writers? The Holy Spirit to reveal what? Christ. And who dwells inside of us? The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that actually illuminated, breathed in through the disciples to write the story, the message, the gospels, the epistles, the revelatory work of the apocalyptic work of revelation. Who did that? That was the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ. To do what? To reveal Christ. Look, Think about the book of Revelation. The Holy Spirit is carrying along John, right? He's revealing to John who? The revelation of Christ. That's an enunciation of the entire Bible right there. You could call the entire Bible the revelation of Christ. And we have the Spirit of Christ who is laboring, not just throughout history to reveal Christ, but is laboring in us to reveal Christ. Now, I'm not going to take more time and teach on the Holy Spirit, even though it's one of my favorite topics. But the entire idea is that the Word of God in text, who, who inspired it? Who breathed it? It was the Holy Spirit. The Word of God in person, who was the one animating? Who was the one like a hand in that glove? It was the Holy Spirit animating the Christ and revealing the Word of God. And then we have the Word of God in action. Who's the one animating and bringing about all of these events Who's the one steering providentially all the details, not just the day, but the hour? I mean, every detail, every aspect is inspired, cultivated, cold, orchestrated by the Holy Spirit to reveal what? The Word of God in action. And then who moves inside of us? The same Spirit. The same Spirit that is carried along the prophets the writers of the Old Testament to reveal law, Proverbs. All of this is the same one that animated the man, Jesus. The same one that 
carried him to the cross and exemplified the perfection of righteousness, holiness, love, justice, truth, kindness, everything, so that we would see the word of God expressed more fully in that one moment than any other time in history. And this same one moves into us. To do what? To reveal to us the word of God and to reveal through us the word of God. So the five fabulous fingers, the word of God in text, the scripture, the word of God in person, Jesus, the word of God in action, the cross, the word of God in us, the Holy Spirit, the word of God through us. Of course, that's what we're gonna cover tomorrow, which is the essence of what Christ has accomplished. You see, we believe in those first three and we are saved. And as a result, we become ready to receive his great purpose, which is that we would become the dwelling place of the Most High God, that we would become the mobile versions of the Word of God. We would become, what is oftentimes referred to as in Christian history, living letters, living epistles. Why is the Holy Spirit desirous to live inside us? So I'll give you two little answers to that, both by Paul and 2 Corinthians, very close to each other. 2 Corinthians 3, 2 through 3. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. It's an amazing statement in light of what we're talking about here. In other words, just as Christ is a living letter, he is the word of God made flesh, so God intends us to be like a letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by God himself, so this world would hear and understand the realities of the unseen realm. It's just incredible. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Whew. And then here we are in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Remember the question that I have is, why is the Holy Spirit desirous to live inside us? But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Remember the glove that is in perfect agreement with the hand? We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So who's doing this transforming work? It's the Holy Spirit. You see, how did we receive the Holy Spirit? Because the text revealed a man and that man came in the fullness of time and did that word of God in action. And what he accomplished created a legal avenue of redemption, of forgiveness, of rescue and salvation so that we could be freed to become bondservants unto the living God. We could change our citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. We could change our genealogical record and heritage from being of the lineage of Adam to the lineage of Jesus Christ. We could change our family from being, having a father that is the devil to having a father who is Abba, who is Jehovah God. I mean, this is good news. And so that we could become the house of the spirit of Christ. And that through us, this world could actually behold 
that which is invisible, once again. The invisible hand in the, in the visible glove. We are like the visible glove that is created in the image of the invisible. And it takes that which is hidden and makes it known. Welcome to Christianity. This is what we have the privilege of doing. For some reason, you have discerned the heavenly realms. You see them. You know they're real. For some reason, God has chosen you, selected you, and he has given you grace to comprehend and to know the gospel. He has given you grace to receive it, to believe, to be transformed. He has given you grace to become the very house of God. The hand has moved inside of you as a glove. And now you have a purpose. Now, tomorrow we're going to describe that as that's Christianity. That's what, that's what we're doing, guys. All of that to just get to where we're at right now so that we can now live. Let's take this life, this unstoppable, unquenchable, inextinguishable life, and let's press it into this earth because there's a lost and dying world that needs this gospel. Father, this is for you. Lord, we stand in awe and wonder of what you have done. Thank you, Lord. The more we look upon it, the more we realize we are so small and you so grand. This is so amazing and our understanding and comprehension of it is so limited and feeble. Lord, increase our understanding of the great cross work. Increase our understanding of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be enabled and empowered by your life. Lord, we want to reveal you to this world. But first, we need you to reveal yourself to us. Lord, may we see you. May we know you. May we comprehend you. Change us, Lord. We love you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.